You're listening to The Seventh, Jesus' Words to His Church, a new sermon series by Crosspoint Peachtree City. For more information, please visit us at www.crosspointptc.com. We've been for a couple of months now working our way through a series entitled The Seven, where we've been looking at the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, looking at what Jesus has to say to those churches uh, historically in context, but ultimately in a very timeless fashion, what he has to say to the church today, and specifically us, Crosspoint, Peachtree City. The very first week of this series, I stated the following. I said, regardless of what you believe about the book of Revelation, regardless of where you land with respect to your theology of the end times, we should all be able to link arms under the banner of one unquestionable theme found throughout this book, namely, Jesus wins. That Revelation is the story of Jesus winning, Satan losing, and everything sad becoming untrue for those who are on Team Jesus. And so in Revelation chapter 1, we saw this unbelievable vision of Jesus the King, if you were around at the beginning of this series. For the last couple of months, we've been... Uh, looking at these various letters to these churches. And in each of those, we see the diverse excellencies of Jesus' character come to bear. And so we've seen a lot of Jesus over the last couple of months, which we're excited about as a church. And we could have been done with this series last week. Last week could have been the last time that you saw that creepy video. But I'm a glutton for a challenge, apparently, which is true. We, we relocated across state lines in the middle of a pregnancy. We have two kids that are 13 months apart. We're in the trenches of church planting, and so there's something terribly wrong with me. And this week I had an opportunity to escape that, knowing that we were starting a new series next week. This would have been the week to pull something out of the back pocket that I preached before that you guys haven't heard and just kind of coast through this week and get some sleep and hang out with my three-week-old. But here's my problem. Last week we talked about this idea of Christian inoculation, gospel inoculation. Inoculation being the introduction of a disease agent into a healthy individual to produce a mild form of the disease, which is followed by immunity. So if you've ever gotten a flu vaccine, that's what's going on there. Your body is learning to recognize a mild form of the disease so that it can fight off the real deal when it shows up. And last week I said this. I said that many Christians in our context in this Bible Belt subculture are inoculated to Jesus Christ. They've gotten just enough of Jesus to feel like they don't need him. That many in our context think they know the gospel and that they're experiencing the gospel when they're really not. That they've got a a mild form of the gospel just enough to fight off the real thing every time it shows up. And this is why it's possible for us to sit in seats for months and months and months, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and never experience more of Christ. Many of us are conditioned to fight him off. That we've got our Jesus shots when we were a kid, and we've managed to successfully do battle against the real Jesus Ever since, we're good with a mild form of him, just enough to feel good about ourselves, but try to inject us with more of him, and our souls then go into immunization mode. And the cry becomes, give me a life-enhancing Jesus, but don't give me a life-altering Jesus. And so in light of that reality, it seems absurd to me to go anywhere but Revelation 4, to set the stage, to put this thing into context. That why would we not finish this thing out with a vision of God on his throne? You see, here's the deal. The vision in uh, Revelations chapter 1 and chapter 4 is the answer to the problem in each of the churches in Revelations chapters 2 and 3. There's a bookending of a vision of God here that's meant to be helpful for us. 
that in, in every letter, Jesus says to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, how do you overcome? How do you conquer as a Christian? The answer is simply by seeing and savoring God more. You can really break down the problems in each of these seven churches into one of two categories. Namely, either the issue is pride, thinking too highly of yourself, or unbelief, thinking too little of God. And so you see this. If you go back to the seven churches, um, three of them struggled with pride. The, the cry of the church in Ephesus was this. Our theology is good. We're a veritable beehive of gospel labor. But the cry of the church in Sardis was we have the reputation of being alive. People think well of our church. The, the cry of the church in Laodicea is we have everything we need. We're a self-sufficient, self-sustaining, well-oiled machine. Pride. On the other hand, the other four churches had to do battle with belief. For the church in Smyrna, the cry was, we're being persecuted by both the Jews and the Romans. We're slandered. We're impoverished. We're facing uh, certain imprisonment and death. Will God meet us in our time of need? It's a belief issue. For the church in Philadelphia, the cry was, we're being persecuted. Do we really believe that Jesus holds the keys to life and death? Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that he's worth giving our lives for? For the church in Pergamum, the cries, we live in the city nicknamed Satan's throne. Do we really believe that Jesus is better than everything the world has to throw at us, that everything that the devil of hell himself has to throw at us? Do we believe that? And for the church in Thyatira, the cry is this, the Jezebel spirit is alive and well in our midst. Her allure is strong. She's calling our names. Do we really believe that Jesus is better? Do we really take him at his word? How do you overcome pride on the one hand? thinking too highly of yourself, and unbelief, on the other hand, thinking too lowly of God? The answer is, you look at the throne. The Greek word for throne is used 14 times in the 11 verses that we're going to look at this morning. You think God doesn't want you to look at his throne? That when you're uncertain of God's power, you need to look at the throne. That when you're uncertain of God's justice, you need to look at the throne. That when you're uncertain of God's goodness, you need to look at the throne. That when you're uncertain of God's redemptive purposes for your life, you need to look at the throne. That when you're uncertain of God's plan in the midst of hardship and pain and persecution, you need to look at the throne. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Revelation chapter 4. We're going to be in the entirety of that chapter this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under one of the seats nearby in one of the rows in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and flip open to Revelation chapter 4. It's the last book in the Bible. I'm going to read through the passage this morning, and we'll pray, and we'll jump in and get to work because we have much ground to cover. It says this, beginning in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. And after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature like a lion. 
the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, seated upon your throne even now, in a very small way, a very small way, I understand what the Apostle Paul meant when he said, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. The very idea that we can make sense of an unveiling of your throne borders on the realm of the absurd. Would you give us a glimpse of your power, God, of your justice, of your goodness, of your sovereignty, of your redemptive purposes this morning. And in doing so, would you overcome pride in the hearts of us who think too highly of ourselves on the one hand, and would you overcome unbelief in the hearts of us who think too lowly of you on the other hand? We ask these things of you, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of the one true King Jesus. Amen. All right, let's get right into this thing. Got a lot of ground to cover. Beginning in verse 1. John sets the stage. The Apostle John, it says, after this, after what? In context, namely after John's encounter with the risen Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 and the subsequent recording of the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. In light of those encounters, those realities, John says, after this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what, may, what must take place after this, that John seen the risen Jesus, and now Jesus, the one speaking like a trumpet, the one who's been speaking to John all along throughout the first few chapters of this book of the Bible, says, come up here, let me show you something. That come up here, assume some sort of ascension. Now, we don't know if John ascends in the body or if this is an out-of-body experience, but suffice it to say that like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, like Moses on Mount Sinai, like the prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah, John receives a special revelation of God himself, and he welcomes us into that this morning. Notice that it's through Jesus that John has access to God and his throne, that Jesus is our mediator, and we're going to see that as this passage unfolds this morning, that Jesus says, I'll show you what must take place after this. In other words, I'll show you everything that's going to unfold as human history moves toward my second coming. In verse 2, he says, John says that once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. The book of uh, this book of the Bible if you haven't noticed yet is very trinitarian in nature. We saw it in chapter 1 and you see it again here that the Holy Spirit mediates this vision and Jesus the Son mediates access to the Father and his throne. That we believe in one God, three persons. We believe in a trinitarian God as Christians. Now, at the center of the throne itself, uh, of the vision itself, is the throne of God, representing his kingly rule, representing his sovereignty. 
And surrounding the throne, if you can picture this, are concentric circles of creatures, of, of angels that are just rippling out, that focus everything on the center of those concentric circles, that God and, and his throne are the focal point of heaven. You might say this, that if your ambition is to be the focal point of everything in the universe, Christianity is most certainly not for you. That you can't be uh, the king of your own kingdom. You can't hang on to your own kingdom and be about God's kingdom. You can't have both. There's not room for two sovereigns in terms of the Christian worldview. That God is seated on the throne of the universe, on the throne of human history. That's what John's communicating to us this morning. So there's your setup. In verses 3 through 8, we now see the picture painted of what this actual throne looks like. John's going to spend the remainder of this chapter painting a picture for us of what he sees in human language. Going back to the the first week of this series, it's important to note that with respect to everything that John sees, he sees it in symbolic form. That if you remember, if you were here in week one, I I took us back to the Old Testament, uh, Joseph's dream. Joseph dreamed that uh, there was the sun and there was the moon and there were 11 stars bowing down to him which are symbolic of his mother and his father and his brothers bowing down to him. Now, does that mean that in his dream he saw his mom, saw his dad, he saw his siblings? No, he actually saw the symbols which represented his family. And we know that to be true because if you fast forward to Genesis chapter 41, Pharaoh has a dream. He dreams that there are seven fat calves and and that seven skinny calves come up out of the Nile River and eat those seven fat calves, which are symbolic of seven years of good crops followed by seven years of famine for Egypt. Now, does that mean that Pharaoh saw seven years of good crops followed by seven years of famine? I don't think so, because if he did, he wouldn't have needed Joseph to interpret his vision for him, his dream. He actually saw seven cows eaten by seven other cows, and he's going, what is that about? Can somebody interpret that for me? The same is true here in Revelation that uh, when you encounter someone having a vision or a dream, that oftentimes what they're seeing are the symbols themselves that need to be interpreted. And so we need to keep that in mind as we take a look at this unveiling vision in Revelation chapter 4. Remember, John's told in in chapter 1 verse 11 to write down what he sees. And so this is not a literal picture of what God and his throne look like. Rather, it's a symbolic picture of what God sees is like. Let me, let me give a helpful word picture here. D.A. Carson was super helpful for me this week. So um, the way he impacted it was, was like this. He said, imagine that you go into a very remote village in a third world country where you don't know the language and your goal is to then learn that language. How's that going to go for you? Well, probably what you're going to do is you're going to listen for sounds and certain inflections and you're going to record in your journal uh, what certain things seem to mean. You're going to point at things and have the people in that village uh, declare what those things are so that you can record it and look for certain patterns and certain categories that you can then create. And all might be well and good if you were able to do that. But what if then you were asked to try to explain something like electricity to the people in that third world remote village? It'd be very difficult, right? Because even if you share a common language you don't necessarily share a common experience. That you're trying to communicate something that you've experienced to people who haven't. And so you would have to likely say something like this. You would have to say, well, back where we're from, we have these vines that that run through the sky. And surging through those vines is this spirit-like power 
Um, and, and strangely, we hold those vines in the sky by way of trees. We actually take the trees out of the ground, we reshape them, and then we put them back in a hole in the ground, and they hold the vines together so that this spirit-like power moves through the vines, and it finally makes its way to our hut. And when it gets to our hut, we, we then have this tiny little ball that sits in, in the sky of our hut that can then function like a tiny moon for us. So that whenever the sun goes down and whenever the moon is darkened, we can still live by the light of our tiny sun, our tiny moon in the middle of the darkness. Now, do you see what I just did there? Because much of what I said was very much in the realm of simile or metaphor. It's like a vine that, that would run through the sky. And we have these things like trees that come out of the ground that hold them. And it's a spirit-like power. None of that that I described is actually the truth of of how electricity works if I were using the, the language that we would use to describe that, right? I have to use simile. I have to use metaphor. If you read Revelation chapter 4, this description of the throne, you see that. That John says uh, that many things are like certain things that we can wrap our minds around in some sense. That you can't fully describe God in human language. That As John Calvin famously stated, the scriptures are essentially God baby talking to us. Which is crazy when you read the book of Romans, right? That mind-blowing, that that's baby talk, that's God stooping down in order that we might actually understand who he is, in order that we might have any hope of knowing him. It's with that frame of mind that we look at the rest of the passage this morning, John's representation of the throne of God, and we see some things about God's character. In verse 3, you see God's royal splendor. It says, And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Here you get this picture of the splendor of God. Much of the imagery in this chapter points back to the Old Testament. And so both Jasper and Carnelian were found in the breastplate of the high priest. Uh, he would wear that according to uh, Exodus chapter 28 when he would perform his priestly duties. Both of these stones are found in Revelation chapter 21 in the wall of the New Jerusalem. That You're meant to see that the Bible threads together. It's not just some piecemealed stories that we just kind of tag together so that you might look at a bunch of heroes and make much of everyone that you see in terms of Bible characters, but rather it's one threaded redemption, uh, redemptive story that is meant to cause us to look at the one true hero, Jesus, from cover to cover. Carnelian is a red stone. Jasper, on the other hand, is kind of unique. It's a translucent stone, which means that it's semi-transparent. It's kind of like a stained glass window. It allows light to pass through, but it diffuses the light when it does so that uh, you can't necessarily see on the other side uh, with clear visibility. And so you have this light-refracting thing going on. If you can put yourself in the throne room of God for a moment, you have this light-diffusing thing going on so that if you were to move an inch to the left or an inch to the, the right, you'd be mesmerized in a whole new way by the radiance of the light reflecting in the way that it does. When I was a kid, I used to collect baseball cards. Um, for those of you guys in the room who did the same, maybe some of you ladies, um, there used to be ones that were holograms, you know what I'm talking about? And you, you move those things just a little bit of an angle, and it changes, like the ball player goes from, from knocking one out of the park to all of a sudden he's catching one over his shoulder, and like you see all these different images, and you just have to move the card just a fraction of an angle to see that. That's the idea here, that the way that the throne room is described is that you can literally move an inch to the left or an inch to the right and be mind-blown in ways that you weren't mind-blown before you moved. That you're now in the presence 
of God, and you have these translucent, light-diffusing gemstones that are just meant to blow your mind. That 1 John 1, 5 says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He's the source of light. He's the source of majesty. He's the source of splendor. He'll never bore you in the new heavens and the new earth. Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever thought that? I mean, yeah, I'm excited about heaven because it sounds better than hell. I don't know that we're not going to get bored 15 minutes into this thing, right? What are we going to do up there? Are there going to be, like, group games? Are there going to be fields to play on with cones or something? Like, what are we going to be doing? And the idea is that you're never going to get bored because God himself is the center of the new heavens and the new earth. And and you can barely move without being mind-blown in new ways. If you were to stand in the presence of that kind of royalty, you'd immediately be undone, just so you know. Like Ezekiel, you'd fall to your knees. Like Isaiah, you'd be compelled to cry out, woe is me, I'm unclean. How kind is it for God to give the apostle John and us by association the image of the rainbow here? We're meant to look back to God's covenant with Noah, his mercy in the midst of his splendor. He's saying, you're in the midst of my glory, my majesty. You don't deserve to be, and yet you're still breathing. That's the idea of this entire chapter. That's where we're going this morning. We see God's royal splendor, and if you move on to verses 4 through 6, you see God's inapproachability. Look at verse 4. It says, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, some argue that these elders represent the church in heaven, that according to that translation, you have the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the New Testament. And that sounds really compelling, right? Sometimes we can shape our numbers and make, make things fit and it seems to work. But I, I don't think that's the appropriate translation here. I think that these elders are a particular rank of angelic beings. And here's why I think that. If you skip forward a chapter to Revelation 5.10, you see these elders speak of the church in third person. You see, these elders refer to the church as them. And then also, if you fast forward to Revelation 14, 3, you see Christians singing a song. You have this picture of the redeemed church singing a song that not even the elders can sing, a song of redemption. Guess who's incapable of singing songs of redemption? Angelic beings. You ever thought about that? That according to uh, Ephesians 3, 10 and 1 Peter 1, 12, angels long to understand the gospel. They can't wrap their minds around it. They gaze with outstretched necks. They marvel at God's work of redemption because they're not a part of it. Jesus didn't die for fallen angels. Fallen angels won't be redeemed. And unfallen angels don't need to be redeemed. They haven't sinned, right? And so the song of redemption is for the church alone. For those reasons, I think that the elders in verse 4 are a higher rank of angels. Now, there's a reason I took time to explain that, not to be super nerdy and theological, but I want you to see as we work through this passage this morning that you and I have no business being on the scene. That if the interpretation is that this is the church built on the foundation of the 12 Old Testament um, tribes of Israel and, and the 12 New Testament apostles, then that communicates that we do have a right to be there. But I, I don't think that that's... The case. I, I think that what God's trying to communicate in this chapter in its fullness is, is that he is quite inapproachable as he is without some sort of mediator. Um, think about it this way. You look at this throne, you have 24 angelic beings surrounding the throne. You have these creatures surrounding the throne. 
It's meant to communicate that God is quite difficult to get access to. Think about it. Um, the more important you are, the more cronies you're surrounded by, right? And, and if you're really, really important, your cronies have cronies of their own. So that you, you can't just go and knock on the White House door and say, I'd like to grab lunch with the president, whether you like him or not, whatever your reason for grabbing lunch with him, to yell at him or to you know, actually encourage him. Um, you can't do that. You, you can't just go knock on William and Kate's door and say, hey, tea and crumpets today. What do you think, guys? That, that just doesn't work. You, you can't go uh, knock on Pinewood Studios' uh, front gate and say, I'd like to grab lunch with an A-list actor today, so can you guys please make that happen? Just send them on out, and we'll just, we'll just do that. Important people surround themselves with other people, making it very difficult to approach them. God is surrounded by angelic beings who themselves are royal with golden crowns on their heads. That God's royalty is surrounded by derived royalty that just ripples out. You get in this picture here? You can't get to him. You have to go through concentric circles of royalty, concentric circles of creatures, just to have a shot at God. You, you get the feeling that at this point in the vision, John's the guy on the back row who just got a bad seat to the concert. And he's trying to see over the really tall guy to, to see that sweet guitar riff that's going on in the middle of the song. He just can't seem to make it happen. If you move on to verse 5, see more of this. It says, From the throne there came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were seven burning torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, that you have these flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. One of the greatest displays of power in the world is nature unleashed, right? We've all experienced it to some degree. Have you ever been caught in the middle of a horrific storm? When I was in college, I may have told this story before, and I'll tell it in greater detail when it makes sense to, but I almost had a tree fall on me in an above-a-garage apartment that I lived in in college. If it weren't for the fact that the house was made of brick rather than the siding, the tree would have literally landed on my face and killed me. I woke up to that in the middle of a nap and realized that I'm quite smaller than I think I am, that I can be crushed in a moment. Maybe you felt that. Um, when a legitimate storm hits your neighborhood, some of you guys, uh, you run to the bathroom, curl up in the corner, put your thumb in your mouth, and get in the fetal position because storms freak you out. Right? You will never tell anyone that that's what you do when you react to storms, but some of you guys are terrified by storms. For some of us, when storms hit, when you're in your vehicle so that you can't see five feet in front of you, you start brokering deals with God, right? I, I promise I'll turn it to the fish and I'll never change the channel if you'll just let me live, God, right? We go into broker mode with the Lord. This is, this is the vision that you get if you go back in the Old Testament to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai with Moses. That if you recall the story, the Israelites have been freed from hundreds of years of enslavement to Egypt. And Moses has led the people out of Egypt through the parting of the Red Sea into the wilderness. And the people find themselves at Mount Sinai. And according to Exodus 19, we're told that God descends upon the mountain with thunder and lightning, with fire and smoke in a thick cloud. And we're told that even the mountain itself trembles. And God says if anyone touches this mountain, they will be struck dead. You can just feel the, sh the sheer terror-invoking power of the Lord at that scene in the Old Testament. That you might say it this way, uh, fast forwarding back to Revelation uh, chapter 4. Those storms that terrify you in such a way that you want to run in the opposite direction, God's on the other side of those storms. 
that the weakest displays of God's power are capable of invoking fear in the hearts of men. The burning torches of fire, what do we make of those? Well, they point back to the Old Testament as well. They point back to the seven-pronged lampstand in the tabernacle in Exodus 25. They point to the golden lampstand with seven lights in Zechariah chapter 4. We talked about this before in this series. The seven uh, torches represent the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That again, God is distanced from us. The Spirit stands between us and the throne. We're meant to feel our distance. We, we need the Spirit mediating anything in terms of us getting access and a glimpse of God. Now, what about the sea of glass? This is the most tricky because my guess would be that most of us, when we hear the phrase sea of glass in the Bible, we, we think of um, that perfect day for water skiing. Right? That day when there is, is no choppiness upon the lake. You can just see it like, like glass. It's, it's a mirror almost. You, if you could kind of fly above it like a bird, you'd see your reflection perfectly because there are no ripples, there are no, no waves. And so most of us get that picture but I'd like to argue that uh, that's not at all what's going on here, that I think this is quite chaotic. Let me give a few reasons why. One, the sea was a symbol of chaos for the Israelites, plain and simple. That uh, the picture of, of the sea, uh, when it came to uh, the people of God, was one of great chaos. The Israelites were not a seafaring people. That The one time they tried to have a navy under the reign of Solomon, they went and hired people from Tyre and Sidon to run the, the ships. They were terrified of the sea. That, If you recall in the Gospels, the disciples were terrified out of their minds when they were caught in the midst of a storm thinking that certain death was upon them, right? If you fast forward to John's final vision in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, we're told this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Second reason that I think that the sea is meant to uh, be pictured as um, something quite tumultuous rather than something calm, is remember the scene at large here. Flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, torches of fire. This is not a scene of tranquility. I would imagine that the sea is, is moving rapidly in the midst of, of the storm that John is able to see coming from the very throne of God himself. But then another reason I think this is true is uh, if you go back to the Old Testament, once again, you have some imagery here that outside the temple was a, a bronze basin uh, where priests could wash themselves and perform ceremonial duties, purifications, you might say. And this basin was sometimes referred to as the sea, according to 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 23. That for the Israelites, uh, this basin was a reminder of their deep need to be made clean before God, that John is standing in the throne room of heaven, flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, torches of fire. You can imagine John feeling like Isaiah in this moment, going, Woe is me, I'm a man of what? Unclean lips. The imagery of the bronze basin outside of the temple would have resonated with John big time. I'm undone. I need to be made clean. So if the sea is tumultuous, if it's chaotic in this vision, how do you make sense of the language of a sea of glass like crystal? Well, in the ancient world, for one, glass wasn't clear at all. It had so many imperfections that it glistened in the light. It was translucent like jasper. It was semi-transparent so that if you moved, you caught light coming off of it in different ways. In fact, the word crystal here in the Greek comes from the word kruos, which means frost. 
It's a frosted glass. It's a translucent, semi-transparent glass. It's not a, I can see through to the bottom of the lake kind of glass. And so again, you have this light reflecting, uh, refracting, light refracting thing going on. You have all the colors of the throne playing off this translucent, light-diffusing sea. If you can get this image in your mind of the picture John's trying to paint. In other words, the sea is glistening by the light of the storm as it swells greatly. It's chaotic. It represents the fallen order of things. What I, what I think verses 5 and 6 are, are attempting to communicate is very simply this. That God is distanced from us by his sheer power displayed in the lightning and the thunder. That God is distanced from us by the beings that stand between us and his throne. And that God is distanced from us by the fallen order of things, the absolute chaos represented by the sea. The question we're meant to ask in Revelation chapter 4 as we stand with John is how are we going to get to God? How are we going to overcome the distance between us and him? This interpretation causes us, as it should, to look ahead to Revelation chapter 5 where we encounter Jesus, and we'll get there momentarily. But before we do, look at verses 6 through 8 where we encounter God's perfect character. Verse 6 says this, And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within, day and night, never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, again, remember, we're meant to see the symbolism in this picture that John's painting for us. And this symbolism comes from two places, Ezekiel chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 6. That in Ezekiel 1, you get this language of four living creatures. It's not um, a, a spitting image of Revelation 4, but the creatures are the same nonetheless. That in the ancient world, the, the lion was the king of the beast. Same thing in present day, right? This communicates God's royalty, his nobility, that in the ancient world, some gods were depicted like that of an ox, meant to communicate God's strength. That the face of a man is meant to represent God's wisdom. And the flying eagle is meant to represent God's compassion, his care, his swiftness to intervene in our lives. In Isaiah 6, you get the language of angels with six wings, very similar to what you see here in Revelation chapter 4. We're told in Isaiah 6 that with two wings, they covered their faces, which communicates a reverence a humility before God. With two wings, they covered their, their lower parts, their feet, which communicates a modesty before God. And with two wings, they flew, which communicates a swiftness to execute God's commands. That This is what an encounter with the living God is meant to do. It's meant to cause us to be a people of humility, a people of modesty, a people of obedience. We're told that these creatures in verses 6 through 8 have eyeballs everywhere. That's super weird, right? What is that meant to communicate to us? It's meant to communicate that God's throne sees everything. There's nothing out of his line of sight. John's trying to see the throne, and he's struggling with everything that's in the way. God doesn't struggle to see anything. He knows all things. He's omniscient. And these creatures, these angelic beings, never stop crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. There are only two places in the entire Bible where you see this repetitive uh, communicating of an attribute of God here in Isaiah chapter 6. And in fact, you don't see any other attribute of God communicated this way. So nowhere in the Bible do you see faithful, faithful, 
faithful is the Lord God Almighty. Or loving, loving, loving is the Lord God Almighty. Or just, just, just is the Lord God Almighty. All those things are true, but the only attribute of God in Scripture that's proclaimed in this repetitive way is the holiness of God. J.I. Packer says this, says, when Scripture calls God or individual persons of the Godhead holy, the word signifies everything about God that sets him apart from us and makes him an object of awe, adoration, and dread to us. He goes on to say this, it covers all aspects of his transcendent greatness and moral perfection and thus is an attribute of all his attributes, pointing to the very Godness of God at every point. That this chapter of the Bible is meant to make every one of us feel very small. Like we have no business being here, just like John. See how a glimpse of God on the throne uh, is the means by which you overcome pride on the one hand, thinking too highly of yourself, and unbelief on the other hand, thinking too little of God? See how this kind of vision just crushes both of those ways of thinking? That there's no pride surrounding the throne of God, nor is there any failure to believe. Look at the humility in verses 9 through 11 as we finish out this passage, and look at the strong belief in God's character in those same verses. Verse 9 says this, and wherever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Holy, whole, or worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That, that these creatures, these angelic beings, fall prostrate before the Lord in humility. They sing of his character with all of their being. If you're the Apostle John, what are you thinking at this point? Put yourself in his shoes for a second. What's the question that's running through your mind at this point? Tell you what I'm thinking. What am I doing here? I don't have any business to even get a backseat to this where I'm stretching my neck trying to see what's going down at the throne of God. God's too transcendent. He's too altogether different from me. I have no place being here. All of this Old Testament imagery points back to the tabernacle to the temple of God. The tabernacle and the temple were set up in such a way that there was an outer court, there was a holy place, and then there was the holy of holies. And these different areas represented different degrees of holiness in approaching God. And so only ceremonially clean Israelites could enter the outer court. Only the priest could enter the holy place, and only the high priest could enter the holy of holies, and even that had great stipulations attached to it that we're meant to feel the weight of the moment here. How do you stand in the presence of the 5,000 degree centigrade holiness of God and not burn up in an instant? Much less sit with him on his throne as Jesus unpacked for us in last week's passage. Here's where the beauty of Revelation chapter 5 comes in. We're not going to open up that chapter this morning, but I would encourage you to read it this week. It would be very helpful to come out of this morning and to read chapter 5 that the apostle john is undone in light of his experience in revelation chapter 4 he needs a mediator like old testament israel he needs a way to get to god he needs a means by which the story will actually end with everything sad becoming untrue and in the midst of john's weeping in revelation 
chapter 5, one of the angels surrounding the throne says this to him in chapter 5. He says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. That's Jesus. And he goes on to say, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. How do you stand in the presence of the 5,000 degree centigrade holiness of God and not burn up in an instant? The answer, Jesus The line of Judah, the lamb who was slain, Jesus our mediator, Jesus our high priest, Jesus our king, Jesus our shepherd. That he lived a life that we can never live, a perfect sinless life. He died the death that we deserve to die in our place for our sins. He absorbed the 5,000 degree centigrade holiness and wrath of God that we had coming our way. That we can stand in the throne room of God, not based on our own goodness, but based on Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us. God made a way through Christ, which is why it's appropriate for us to sing verses like this. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. And the verse goes on to say, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, Jesus, no tongue can bid me thence depart. That I can have access to the very throne room of God and I can share the throne with Jesus as he says in Revelation chapter 3 because of who he is and what he's done for me as I come to him with nothing more than my sin in the empty hands of faith. When pride or unbelief creep in, thinking too highly of yourself or thinking too little of God, the answer is always to look to the throne and the one who died for you so that you could have access to God, so that you could be made right with God. That if the vision of the throne doesn't compel us, there's not a thing in this universe that will. In a moment, we're going to take communion. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. We take communion here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. We do this as a declaration of who he is and what he's done for us until he returns. We proclaim his life, death, and resurrection. And so if you're a Christian, we invite you during this time momentarily to come and take of communion. As we prepare to do so, let me leave you with a question and a quote. The question is this. How big is your God? Have you shaped God in your image in such a way that you are seeking to avoid the painful process of having him shape you into his image? Is your God the God of Revelation chapter 4, or is your God small enough to keep in a box of your own creating? Here's the quote from Charles Meisner, a scientific relativity theorist. He says this. He says, I do see the design of the universe as essentially a religious question. That is, one should have some kind of respect and awe for the whole business. It is very magnificent and should not be taken for granted. In fact, he says, I believe that is why Albert Einstein had so little use for organized religion, although he strikes me as a very religious man. Einstein must have looked at what preachers said about God and felt like they were blaspheming. He had seen so much more majesty than they had ever imagined And they were just not talking about the real thing. Are you talking about the real thing? Is your God the God of Revelation 4? Is your hope the Jesus of Revelation 5?
Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.